This morning we'll finish up Colossians, so turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4. This letter from Paul is about Christ's sufficiency, that Christ is sufficient in all things, that He secures our salvation from beginning to middle to end. And so real spiritual change happens when by the power of the Spirit we fix our eyes on Him. We need to fix our eyes on Christ. And so Paul in this letter is teaching us what that looks like in our relationships in the church, in our relationships at home, at work. And, and then here at the end, he's showing us what that looks like in our relationships um, with the lost, with non-Christians. And so last week we considered the question, what can we do to help the progress of the gospel? And we saw that we should partner in the gospel ministry with our prayer. That we ought to join, Paul calls the believers there to join with him in prayer for the spread of the gospel. And he also throughout the letter reminds them that he's praying for them as they seek to do the same. Here, we answer the question, what can we do to help the progress of the gospel by seeing that, in this text, that, that we must lend support, comfort, and encouragement. That we must mutually rely on one another in the work of the gospel so that it spreads to the people around us and across the globe. So let's read our text beginning in verse 7. We'll go to the end of the book. This is the Word of God. As to all my affairs, Tychicus, our beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bondservant in the Lord, will bring you information. For I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know about our circumstances, that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of your number, they will inform you about the whole situation here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings, and also Barnabas' cousin, Mark, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And also Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision, and they have proved to be an encouragement to me. Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. For I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings and also Demas. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and also Nympha and the church that is in her house. When this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. Say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my imprisonment. Grace be with you. The spread of the gospel not only demands our prayer, that, our, that we uh, pray with one another, but also here in this text we'll see that the spread of the gospel demands our mutual reliance on fellow believers. Now, the key is to understand that our ultimate reliance is not on fellow believers, but we ought to be interdependent in our relationship with one another, which is what Paul's doing. And, and the idea here is that he's not uh, a, a maverick. You know, he's not just going to go at this alone 
I am, I am the lone survivor when it comes to, to the Gospel. Instead, he enlists the help of others and depends upon them and expects them to help him in the work of the ministry. He knows that he is not just a one-man show. And so that's what I mean by mutual reliance, that, that we need to recognize this more than just me, more than just you, that, that is responsible for the work of the Gospel. We, we need to rely on one another. And we'll see this in several ways. First, through his messengers... Paul's messengers in verses 7 through 9. See their credentials here. Uh, Two messengers are bringing this letter to them. Tychicus in verse 7, and then Onesimus in verse 9. Tychicus is described as a fellow believer and servant in the Lord. He was likely not from the church at Colossae. Uh, In fact, go back to Acts chapter 20. We'll see where, where he's first mentioned in the Scriptures, Acts 20. Here Paul is getting ready to head over to Jerusalem and he's going to take a group of men with him. And it says there in verse 4, And and Paul was accompanied by Sopater of Berea, the son of Pyrrhus, and by Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians and Gaius of Derbe and Timothy and Tychicus and Trophimus of Asia. But these had gone on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. So we learn a few things about Tychicus. First, there in verse 4, he is from Asia, which we think of a continent, but but for them it was Asia Minor, the area where modern-day Greece is and Turkey. Um, We also learn that he's one of the men who accompanied Paul on his trip to Jerusalem at the end of his third missionary journey. Paul had gone back through the churches now to encourage them during this, this final journey. And then he heads back to Jerusalem because he has a couple of things that he wants to do. First, he wants to take an offering that had been collected by the churches to the Jerusalem church because they had some kind of famine or some, some kind of great plight that happened as a result of, of something outside of them. And also, Paul wanted to go to Jerusalem to participate in the Jewish festi- festival and he wanted to encourage believers there. And so, for all those reasons, he heads back to Jerusalem and that he wanted to take this money with him, but he didn't handle the money himself. Instead, he brought along these men who are listed in verse 4 as men who are representatives of the various churches or regions of churches where they were. So they would collect the money. These men would come along now with Paul with the money and they could go. When they arrived at Jerusalem, it wouldn't be like Paul saying, here's the money that I collected for you. Instead, he's saying, here are these men who represent these churches that we have collected and these churches were kind enough to, to get this money together. And so Paul's kind of um, giving proper credit uh, where it's due. And he's also, I think, protecting the, the money so that it's not just, you know, that there's no uh, accountability there. And so he brings these men along with him so that people can't say, well, you just did that to, you know, to, to pilfer from it and that sort of thing. Instead, he brings these men along um, to give them credit and to have property integrity with the money. Well, Tychicus is one of these representatives from the churches in Asia Minor, and apparently he spent time with Paul here in Acts 20. This is uh, around A.D. 61, and so here, uh, I'm sorry, A.D. 56. And so 
here's the first time that we hear about Tychicus. He goes along with Paul. Now turn back to Colossians because Colossians is written around A.D. 61. So five or six years later, here you have Tychicus now being a messenger of Paul. So he's still apparently hanging out with Paul, going along with him. Paul, remember, now is in a prison in Rome, but he needs help in order to continue to to encourage people and influence people for the sake of the gospel. And so Tychicus is one of his men that, that help him in that way. He's a valuable asset to him. And Tychicus is also mentioned, mentioned in Ephesians 6.21. And they're basically told the same thing that they're told here in Colossians 4 and verse 7 that, that, he, um, that he's coming along to, to tell you what's going on and, and to deliver this message to you. So very likely what happened was Paul had written Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon, and he sent all three of those letters with Tychicus and Onesimus to deliver it to these two churches and to this, this, um, this master, Philemon, as well. Tychicus is going to continue to be a part of Paul's ministry. And three years later, Titus uh, is told by Paul that, that, that he might, Paul might send Tychicus to help in Ephesus. And so Tychicus apparently comes to Christ at some point in Acts from Asia Minor through the work of Paul and then becomes a close helper of his, much like Barnabas or Silas that we know. He's more a little bit in the background, not, not in the front, but, but what they want to know is uh, what Colossians need to know is that he's a faithful minister of the gospel. And we learn from all this that Tychicus is a valuable human resource who encourage, encourages Paul and acts as his representative to the various churches. So Paul can't get on a video conference and, and be able to explain what he wants to, to tell them. He can't, um, he can't come to them in person. So he needs to have someone that who will faithful, faithfully represent what he is doing and what he is saying. Tychicus is, is much like maybe a spokesperson of the White House. He knows Paul. He's been with him. And although he's not Paul himself, he can speak on behalf of Paul in a way that would be consistent with Paul's thinking. And so Paul calls him this faithful servant and fellow bondservant. The second person that comes to help deliver the letter is Onesimus who's also described as a faithful and beloved brother, a man who has recently helped Paul. We'll learn more about him next week because he's the slave that had run away from Philemon and had come to Christ at some point and now wants to go back and be restored to Philemon. And so, um, But in the meantime, after his salvation, apparently Onesimus comes to saving faith and, and, and then after that he, he, uh, he joins in the work of Paul and becomes a, a great encourager to him. And we'll see that next week and as we look at Philemon. Paul sends him back saying, notice what he says there in verse 9, our faithful and beloved brother who is one of your number. So this guy is one of us. You know, before you might have known him through Philemon because Philemon apparently is a member of the Colossian church. But now what I want you to know is that this man has been called out of darkness and into God's wonderful light and so he is one of our number. You can count him among us. So that's their, their credentials. Next we see their mission uh, the sec- in verse 8 and then also actually at the end of verse 7. He will bring you information, talking about Tychicus. And then, for I have sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. So 
they were sent with this responsibility to tell what was going on with Paul because apparently Paul could have, in his letter, told all the circumstances of his present imprisonment. But he doesn't. He doesn't focus on himself. Instead, he says, Tychicus is going to come along and explain all these things that are going on and, and what's going on with my, my case and, and how I'm going to get free and so on. But, but he focuses the letter primarily on what it takes to encourage people in the Gospel. And he says he's also going to, at the end of verse 8, he's going to encourage your hearts. And then Onesimus, at the end of verse 9, who is one of our number, they will inform you about the whole situation here. So, so they have responsibility to encourage and to inform. So there's Paul's messengers. Secondly, we see Paul's friends. Can you advance that next one, please? Paul's friends, verses 10 through 14. Thank you. Verses 10 through 14, we have these uh, two kinds of co-workers, Jewish co-workers and Gentile co-workers. So the Jewish co-workers are listed first. You have Aristarchus, who we saw in Acts 20 as well, Mark and Justice, and then the Gentile co-workers are Epaphras, Luke, and Demas. So first, Aristarchus is described in verse 10 as my fellow prisoner. Now this term at first glance sounds like he's chained and imprisoned in the next cell over, but that's probably not what Paul's talking about because if he wanted to say that, he would use a different Greek word for prisoner. Instead, he uses the word that could be translated as prisoner of war, or and, and Paul's certainly not at war with the Roman government, he was not taken off of the battlefield or something like that. Instead, uh, what he's probably saying is that this man is, is, a, is a, a faithful minister, uh, a prisoner of Christ. We, we are slaves of Christ. We belong to Christ. So I think that's what he's saying here, that he's in the work of ministry. Aristarchus in Acts 20, we saw that he was from Thessalonica and he apparently was with Paul when he brought that offering to Jerusalem as well. And he, like Tychicus, becomes a close companion and helper of Paul with, with this great ministry that's going on all over um, the area. Paul needs many people who can be couriers and, and um, people who can encourage him and help him and bring what he needs. Obviously, you have to remember that as Paul is in prison that he also needs help just with caring for his daily necessities. They didn't have prisons like us where they provide for everything that you need. Instead, uh, you have to have family or friends come and, and bring what you need to survive. Paul's friend Mark is listed next. Uh, Mark is the Mark we know as John Mark. He was the young cousin of Barnabas. His family was rich because his family had a large enough house to, to um, allow the believers to regularly meet there. It's likely that Mark's family's house was the one that Jesus and the disciples used for the Last Supper. Mark was the, the young boy in his gospel that he was kind of watching from the bushes as the events of Jesus' arrest were going on. And when he was spotted, he ran away without the, the sheet that he had come with. Well, as Mark got older, Barnabas encouraged Paul to, to allow Mark to join them in the, the work of missions. And so Mark joined them. But Mark grew up in a rich family and, and pretty cushy lifestyle, I'm sure, and so probably didn't expect to see what he saw out on the mission field and some of the, the great trouble that they experienced. And, and when trouble arose, Mark departed. And Paul couldn't handle that. Remember, Paul didn't want to have anything to do with him. He, he said, I'm not allowing him to come with us. He's going to desert us again. And Barnabas 
said, well, I think he's still a valuable asset to us and I think we should use him. So that's when Barnabas took him and Paul took Silas and they went off on their separate ways. But here, notice what Paul says about Mark in verse 10. He says at the end of the verse, if he comes to you, welcome him. So here, Paul has at some point made a change in his thinking about Mark. That, that Mark either has matured or Mark has come to be reconciled with Paul, recognized that his initial deserting was not the best thing for the team. And Paul maybe had to swallow his pride perhaps and say, you know what, I, maybe I pushed a little too hard. Whatever the case is, Paul and Mark are now reconciled and they're working together once again. And Paul says, he's here with me and he sends you his greetings. And so when he comes to you, welcome him. Don't turn him away. He's a faithful follower of Christ as well. The third Jew that's mentioned here is in verse 11. Justice, also called Jesus. We don't know much about him other than what we see here. The reason I say that these are Jews is because Paul says it in verse 11. He says, these are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision. So there, there you go. The Aristarchus, Mark, and Justice. From the circumcision, they have proved to be an encouragement to me. Next, we see the Gentile workers in verses 12 through 14. Verses 12 through 14, we have Epaphras, Luke, and Demas. We were introduced to Epaphras in chapter 1, and there, he, he very likely could be the pastor of the Colossian church. Um, he's commended for his love and his prayers for the churches. And Paul wants the church to know that they have a value, valuable partner on their side. That, that he is always laboring earnestly. Do you see that in the text? He is one of your number, a bond slave of Christ. Send you his greetings, always laboring earnestly or striving strenuously for you in his prayers that you may stand perfect and fully assured in the will of God. Paul wants them to know that he is working hard on their behalf in prayer. And the result is so that, the end of verse 12, that they will be able to stand perfect and to be fully assured in the will of God. So he prays that God would grant assurance to the Colossian believers as they seek to do the will of God. So from Epaphras, we ought to be reminded of the critical role of believers who are willing to advance the gospel through regular and fervent prayers. Don't underestimate the importance of prayer. And sometimes we, we exalt the people who are out in the front and people who are, are, have their name on a list somewhere or teaching a Sunday school class or something like that. But, but ultimately, uh, there's more to the Gospel than just those people. Those people are important. But, but each of us are important in our responsibility to fervently work for one another in prayers. How can we pray like this? How can we like Epaphras, devote our time and energy to, to uh, caring for the needs of the church through our prayers? Well, the answer, I think, uh, is uh, pointed to an answer here in verse 13. Paul says, For I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are on Laodicea and Hierapolis. So the deep concern seems to be what is behind his praying for them. And I think the praying for them actually fuels his deep concern. I think there's a cyclical effect. If you've, um, if you've had this kind of experience yourself, you know what I'm talking about. 
that as you pray for people, you have a deeper concern for them. And as you have a deeper concern for them, you pray for them. And so he's praying for these churches, Colossian Church and the Laodicean Church and the higher. Uh, the Hierapolin church. So Epaphras. The second Gentile co-worker is Luke. Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greeting, greetings. Paul sends greetings from the second gospel writer, um, the second gospel writer that he mentions. He mentioned Mark earlier, and now he's mentioning Dr. Luke. Luke was a faithful servant of God and committed companion of Paul's, and Luke had seen it all. I mean, he had experienced quite uh, a life of of ministry, Christianity. I mean, he's, he was there when Christ was there. He was one of the original disciples. And then he went along with Paul on his journeys in the book of Acts. In fact, if you look at Acts, it's written by Luke. If you look at Acts and read through it and notice the pronouns in Acts, you'll notice that Luke talks about some events that happened when he wasn't there. So he'll talk about it in the third person, that they did this or something like that. But then he'll move like in chapter 27, he says, we were scarcely able to get the boat under control. We were scarcely able. And, and we might miss some of that as we're reading through Acts really quickly, but if you read through it carefully, notice the pronouns. Luke saying, I was there with Paul. Now, he's not drawing attention to himself. He's just saying that he had, he had been there and, and he was part of that shipwreck that when Paul was on his way from Jerusalem to Rome in order to be tried um, so Luke is a faithful disciple of Christ and, and a faithful friend of Paul's. He had been through a lot. He had seen a lot. And Paul sends his greetings from Luke. And then Demas. Luke, or, uh, Paul just briefly mentions Demas here at the end of verse 14. This letter to the Colossians is written around AD 61. And at this time, Demas is a co-worker of Paul's that he has received the gospel with joy. He has not turned away from the faith. And if this is all we had known about Demas, we would think that Demas died a believer. That Demas is in heaven now. But this is not all that we know about Demas because he's mentioned again in 2 Timothy. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4. And this letter was written by Paul six years later. Paul's giving kind of his final instructions to his faithful ministers of the gospel, Titus and, and Timothy. And, and he says to, um, to Timothy in chapter 4, verse 10, verse 9, Make every effort to come to me soon, for Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. So apparently what we learn here about Demas is that Demas turned away from the faith. While he was a, a co-worker of Paul's during the time of the writing of Colossians, he now has deserted him, but not just that he deserted Paul. In the text there in verse 10, it says he has loved this present world. And, and the indication is that he's loved this present world to the exclusion of Christ. Demas is a man who, who received the word with joy and gladness. He's a man who apparently made a profession of faith. He's a man who apparently was baptized. But sometime between A.D. 61 and A.D. 67, something happened in Demas. There was something more appealing about this present world that caused him to desert Paul and more sadly, to desert God. 
And this is tragic and unsettling. But it should not be surprising. Because Jesus taught us that the seed of the Word falls on various kinds of soils. Some, when the, so- when the, the seed falls, Satan snatches it up and e- immediately and, and no, one even, no, no root is ever taken. The people don't even respond to the Gospel. But others, other seed falls on the rocky places. And Jesus explained it this way in Mark 4, verses 16 and 17. In a similar way, these are the ones on whom seed was sown on the rocky places who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. Then, when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. And then you have the thorny, the thorny soil where the, the, the cares of this world choke out any apparent life that was there. That's Demas. There was some apparent life. It looked like that he, he received the message with gladness that he was going to finish the race. But something in this world got his, caught his eye. It was too sparkly for him to ignore. And Paul says in 2 Timothy 4 that he loved the world and abandoned Paul. Sometimes there are people who show signs of life. right? They receive the Word with joy. It looks like there's going to be life. We see something come out of the ground spiritually, right? But then they get choked out by the cares of this world. And so, yes, it is tragic. It is unsettling to consider that someone who could make a profession of faith and actually be a partner with Paul, a helper with Paul, could actually turn away from the faith. It is unsettling. But it should not be surprising. Paul's final instructions are given in verses 15 through 18. He gives five final instructions for the church at Colossae. First, he wants them to pass on his greeting to other fellow believers. So now that Paul has commended his messengers, Tychicus and Onesimus, and he sent greetings from his friends, Jewish and Gentile, now he wants to send greetings to the believers that are there in the church and in Laodicea. And so he says in verse 15, Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and also Nympha in the church that is in her house. So Nympha is probably a a wealthy widow. Uh, The fact that she has a large enough house to hold church meetings there and the fact that she's mentioned and not her husband suggests that that her husband has died. This is before the time when churches purchased buildings for their gatherings. They would meet in houses or wherever they could. So pass on my greeting. Second, Instruction is, read this letter at your gathering. So Paul says, this, church, this letter is not just for Pastor Epaphras or whoever came after him. This is for the whole church. Read it in your gathering. When you come together to worship, read this letter. This is not just meant for a few spiritual elites. We, as a whole congregation, have a responsibility to guard what is entrusted to us. The whole church needed to be reminded of the theme, I think, of this text, of this whole letter, which is that Christ's sufficiency secures our salvation from beginning to end. And therefore, if we are going to see real spiritual change, change that comes by the power of the Spirit, then we must fix our eyes on Jesus. And so they needed to read this. They needed to hear this. Thirdly, they needed to swap letters. Swap letters with Laodicea. The end of verse 16. 
When this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And then, for and you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. So apparently, in addition to the letter to the Ephesians and the Colossians and to Philemon, there was also another letter that was sent to Laodicea that was not preserved or kept in our canon. The Holy Spirit chose not to include it in our canon. Not that there was anything necessarily wrong in it, but maybe it was just uh, redundant or something else. Not, not clear why, but, but the truth is that Paul sent more letters than we have, right? And yet there are only a few of them that are included in, in the canon of Scripture that is uh, preserved for us by the Spirit. But the point is that I wrote a letter to that church. I wrote a letter to your church. Read your letters among your own congregations and then swap letters and, and, uh, and find, find benefit from both of them. The fourth instruction is to encourage Archippus. Verse 17, Paul wants to encourage Archippus in the ministry. This is the only place where Archippus is mentioned by Paul. And, um, and then there, there's actually one other place, Philemon 1-2, where he greets Philemon and his wife, Aphia, and then also Archippus. So very likely, Archippus is the son of Philemon and Aphia. And um, Archippus apparently has a responsibility of some kind. It could be that, that he is starting to be discouraged and he needs to be encouraged in that way. Uh, it could be that he's starting to turn away from the faith and he needs to be reminded about heeding the ministry which he has received in the Lord, that he may fulfill it. Or it could simply be that he may be taking on a position of leadership. And he just needs to, to have some basic encouragement as he, he goes to do this, this new task. So maybe Archippus is taking over as the pastor of the church. It's not clear. But, but Paul says, would you say to him, heed to the ministry. Notice he doesn't say, Archippus, I'm saying to you, heed to the ministry. He says, you congregation... You say this to Archippus. So what he's doing there is he's telling Archippus what he needs to hear, but at the same time he's including the, the church as a whole in the process so that they know that, you know, that, that, that the work of the ministry is not just one person. It's as we encourage one another to do the work of the ministry. And so we ought to be encouraging one another in that way, whether or not we're in the actual official role of, of doing the proclaiming or the teaching. And then the final encouragement is to is for Paul to, or instruction is is that Paul asks that they pray for him. Specifically, he says, "Remember my imprisonment." And I think what he's saying here is that that you remember my imprisonment in your prayers. Paul apparently takes the stylus from the hand of of the the secretary, maybe Timothy, who's who's writing all this down. Paul now takes the stylus from him and he, he writes these closing lines with his own hand and he says, remember my, my imprisonment. Pray for me in this regard. Most importantly, not that I be released. It sounds like Paul's going to be released. We'll see that next week with Philemon. But, but more importantly, that, that this imprisonment will be used for the progress of the gospel. Right? That the gospel itself would not be imprisoned. It would not be in chains. That it would go and spread. And then Paul concludes in verse 18, grace be with you. A final prayer of grace. He prays for them. Let me make a few observations for us to apply. Number one, the progress of the gospel is quelled by individualism. The progress of the gospel is quelled 
by individualism. The gospel demands that we engage the culture with, with the help of believers who love us and who have a view of the big picture of what God is doing and who are willing to make sacrifices for the advance of the gospel. We need to engage the culture, but we do it with the help of others who are willing to, to be on the same page with us. And Paul was not too proud to think that he could advance the gospel on his own. Right? If the Spirit was going to work through his efforts, then he needed to enlist the faithful support and help of believers. And so, at the beginning of chapter 4, he says, pray for us. And the end of chapter 4, he says, engage in it yourselves. And help us along the way. Encourage believers. Paul had a had enlisted messengers to help with the work of the gospel. Paul also had a team of close believing friends who cared enough about him who would pray for him and encourage him. He needed that. And as I mentioned earlier, the Roman government didn't supply all of his supplies and food. Paul had to have someone come and care for him. So so there's the there's the principle. The progress of the gospel is quelled by individualism. I think we can all recognize that theory, but let's bring that down to where we're at. Think about that in terms of our church. The progress of the gospel at Ambassador is quelled by individualism. So, with regard to our church, we quell the gospel by our own individualism. So, what, let's think about what we can do in order to make sure that the progress of the gospel is not being suppressed in this work that God has called us to do. So let me just ask a few questions and then give you some suggestions as to what I think would help in this way. Questions first. Are, are we interdependent? Right? Ultimately, we're dependent upon God, but are we interdependent? Do we recognize that, that the whole body is necessary, that each joint needs to supply what is, is necessary for the working of the body? Right? Just like we wouldn't just say one body part is the most important. All of our body parts are important. We need them all. Right? In the same way, the church is, is full of people who are important to the work of the ministry. We cannot say, well, you know, we, we really only need this one part or this one person or this one group of people. We need them all. So do we, are we mutually relying on each other to, to, to do the work of the gospel? Do we... Do we Rely on each other for the progress of the gospel. Or are we simply relying on one person or only on ourselves in order to do the work? Let me give you six ways that you can shed individualism and help the progress of the gospel. Number one, attend church regularly. One of the ways that you encourage your fellow believers and myself is that you just attend church regularly. Just That, that is an encouragement it should be an encouragement to you when you see other believers join with you at the same time, listening to the same message, singing the same songs. That should be a, an encouragement to you. It should encourage your heart that other believers are, are um, with one voice praising God together and responding to God in His Word. So attend church regularly. Secondly, pray for believers by name. Pray for believers by name. In this church and in the churches of our missionaries, our missionaries, obviously, and in their churches, you, you have names that you can pray for because you've either been there or you've read about them or you've heard about these people in their churches, so pray for them. But, 
but pray for people in our church by name. This is one of the ways that you help the progress of the Gospel. That, that you engage in the work of prayer, just like... Um, was it Epaphras, right? In, in verse 12. Always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers. Not just about fulfilling a task, fulfilling a role. It's, it's also about getting at home when it's quiet and you're alone and just talking to God about specific people by name. That's a great work uh, that God calls each one of us to do. Number three, solicit the prayers of others. Solicit the prayers of others. So, we have a specific service where we give opportunity for this on Wednesday night when we solicit the prayers of one another. So, we don't just uh, ask you to just pray for us generically. But there are specific things that you can pray for us about. Spiritually, right? physically, emotionally, um, relationally, with regard to our jobs, the nation. There's all sorts of ways that you can pray for us. And so, um, it's not proud of you to ask for help in this in this way, to ask other people to pray for you. So I would say that that we do the work of the ministry. We we help in the progress of the gospel by praying for others and for soliciting prayers for others by name. The reason I know it's not proud is because Paul does it in many almost every letter. He says, "Pray for me. Pray for the progress of the gospel." Number four, one of the other ways that we can help. With the progress of the gospel is give to the church. Right? The money that this church received is receives is used to advance the gospel in this place, Royal Oak, and through our missionaries around the world. So give to the church. And and that money can be used to help um, to help spread the gospel. Number five, suppress cynicism and spread the joy. Suppress cynicism and spread the joy. This is pretty obvious, but I'll just touch on it briefly. You know, uh, we live in a culture that's very cynical and constantly nitpicking every little thing, and we can do that with each other. And we have to be careful, recognize that we should only use words that are helpful for building one another up. Ephesians chapter 4. Let no unwholesome words proceed out of our mouth. So when we have something to complain about, we should take that to God. Uh, and when we have something to to be joyful about, we ought to spread that. Talk to one another about what God is doing, what what great work God has done. Now, it doesn't mean there's no way that you can ever talk about anything that's troubling you. You can only talk to God about it. That's not what I'm saying. But but I, but I'm afraid that that too often we're quick to to uh, to like to pass bad news on, just like the the news stations tend to do. Right? They're filled up with all sorts of terrible things that are going on. And we tend to be that way in our personal conversations as well. I don't think that should be the primary thing that we're talking about as Christians. Number six, serve in in an official or unofficial way. So serve the church in an official. All these ways are actually serving the church, right? Praying for the church, soliciting prayers on your behalf, giving, using your mouth properly, attending the church regularly. Those are all ways that you serve the church. But here's another way, just... Pray, uh, serve in an official or unofficial way. If we're going to see the Spirit change us and grow us as a church, then we need to recognize that, that we have responsibility to serve the church in some way. So what is it that I can do to help advance 
the work of this church? What kind of things are being left undone that I can do and, and help in that way? Spirit is the one who has to change us and help us to grow individually as, and as a church. And if that's going to happen, we need to fix our eyes on Jesus because He is sufficient from mid, beginning to middle to the end of our lives to bring us into a right relationship with God. And so that's where our eyes need to be focused. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the example of the Colossian church. Thank, thank You for the example of the Apostle Paul. Thank You for the example of this church who has worked in the progress of the Gospel for years and many people have, have been faithfully uh, serving this church and, and are continuing to do so. And I pray that You'd just help us to be better at that. Help us to find specific ways that we can help one another and serve one another and do it with with uh, your gaze and view that, that we have our eyes fixed on you. Use us, we pray, Lord, to advance the gospel in this place as we see disciples um, made and as we, we see um, the lost come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and also through our missionaries around the world. Thank you for the opportunity for us to be able to partner with other people in the progress of the gospel. Help us to shed individualism and recognize our interdependence on each other and our ultimate dependence on you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.